Good morning, everybody. How are we? Let me look at you all. If we've never met, my name is Julie. I've been busy looking after my child who is just growing and learning all kinds of words. This week we learned sausage. We can't say I love you, but we can say sausage. So, you know, we're trying. We're really trying. (laughs) So this morning... I'm going to bring to you a word out of Joshua, and um, I've been really praying for you and believing that everybody that's in the room, that Jesus has something specific to say to you. So let's just settle our hearts. Let's just engage with the fact that we're coming to Jesus this morning. Yes, I'm going to say the words, but actually, he's got the words of life. He's got the, the words that are going to help shift something in your life. It's the Holy Spirit that's the one that quickens it to you. And it's God that has a creative capacity in his word and through his very words. And so we're not coming to what I've got to say this morning. We're coming to Jesus and to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So let's just, let's just keep that at the front, forefront of our minds. And let's pray as we begin. Lord, we love you. We love your word. It's life-giving and it's active. And this morning as we submit our hearts to it, Lord Jesus, I pray that you, you shift people, you move their perspective, you help them see where they truly are, you help them leave this morning different than when they walked in, that you help them on Wednesday afternoon, Father, when things are back to normal and life is happening as it does, that Lord, something from this message will spark a memory, the Holy Spirit, you'll bring it back to mind as people need it. And it will help them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the seed of this teaching has come um, from when I was on the floor with Liberty. And we've got a nice comfy mat because I knew I was going to spend a lot of time on the floor. So I'm on the floor. It's an uh, ordinary afternoon. And she's really into books. So she's reading loads of books. And I'm, I'm... I'm doing a bit of lazy mum, so I've got a, a cushion underneath my head, so I'm like really lying on the floor because it's a really comfy mat, and Lib's happy reading. And I'm looking, and I'm seeing the underside of a fiddle leaf fig. Now, I'm particularly pleased about this fiddle leaf fig because any green-fingered people will know they are very finicky, and you have to be like really robust and confident in yourself to take on a fiddle leaf fig because if you just move them, they stress out and drop their leaves. And um, so I've kept this one going for like four years. So I'm particularly proud of it. We haven't named it yet. I'm not quite attached as, as yet. So I'm looking and I'm seeing the underly, underneath of the fiddle leaf fig. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen my fiddle leaf from this perspective. And I counted it up. I've looked at this fiddle leaf fig at least 1,460 times because it's four years old and it's right in, in our living room. So I see it every day, but I've never seen it from this perspective before. And I'm just having this moment of, isn't God amazing? Look at the underside of the leaf. It's just incredible. And it's got loads of veins and it's all amazing. And, um, and then a, the corner of a book just comes like careering into my face because, because Liberty's there. And so she's having fun and we're not quite worked out our own strength and arm grip and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I nearly got brained and got my eye poked out with a book before having this lovely moment. And the seed of this teaching came out of that moment where my position changed and the time was afforded to me. I've been in that house for over four years and I've seen this every day, but I've never had the time to be lying on my comfy mat with a cushion under my head with my little girl looking at it, but that's what life looks like now for me. And so I've got the time and the opportunity to be able to have a look at the underneath of the leaf 
And the shift in position brought for me a new perspective. And that's my prayer for you today. That I'm not going to ask you to move out of your seats. I'm not going to ask you to physically change your position. But that the shift will happen in your perspective. That there'll be some positional change in your heart. There'll be some positional and perspective change in your spirit and in your soul. And that as we submit our lives to the Word of God, that He'll do the moving. It's not up to me to move you this morning. It's up to the Holy Spirit to help you find where it is that you need to move. And He really wants to do that today. That's why we submit in ourselves to him, because he's gentle and he's kind, and he'll do it in the way that is best for your life. I can't do that, but he can. And so as we submit our lives to that this morning, that's my prayer for us. In Joshua 2 is where we're going to center our time together, and perhaps you've not read it for a while, or perhaps you've never read it, or you're unfamiliar with a book. I'm just going to give you a very quick kind of context, get you up to speed, because we don't want to pull something out of context and make it mean something that it can't mean to the original listeners. So Joshua 2 sits in this body of work, and so the, the basic premise is that God's chosen one family to bless the entire world. And he's blessed them so much that they've multiplied into a great nation. Millions of people, people think. And so during lots of different things, they ended up in captivity. And then God said, all right, it's time for you to come out of that captivity. So he raised up a person called Moses, an incredible leader, very flawed man, but incredible leader. And he leads this nation now out of captivity. And they come out with so much blessing. And they see miracle after miracle before they're released from captivity, while they're being released from captivity, just straight after they've been released from captivity. And you would think that would make them really faithful to this God that loves them so much. But no, they're just like you and me. They're like, come really trust God? I don't know. And so they come out and they're into the desert and they get right to the edge of where God says, okay, this is your territory that I'm giving to you. And so it'll be your very own piece of land for you as a people. And then they totally stuff that up. So they get their opportunity and they just blow it. And what that means is, is that they have to wander around in the desert and an entire generation of people has to die. And so there's an entirely new generation of people that are coming to this moment that we're going to look at. And it's really interesting because there's just been this huge leadership change. So Moses, this amazing leader, that's, you know, his face was glowing with glory at one point. He's like tapping rocks and water's coming out and lifting up like bronze snakes. All amazing miracles. He's just died. And his understudy, Joshua, who's been with him for a long time now, he's just been raised up. And um, Joshua 1 is this amazing account where kind of Joshua goes all the way through everything that's happened and kind of does a quick recap. And then the people of Israel at the end, they say this funny line, they say to him, as we served Moses, so will we serve you. And I'm like, mm, if you're Joshua, <laughs> you've got to be like, let's just pause there, guys, and can we... No, I don't want you to serve me the way that you served Moses because that was rubbish. You were unfaithful. You were, you, were, like, you were grumbling all the time. You didn't do what he said. You didn't listen. You like, no, we don't want that. I mean, we want the phrase, we'll, we'll try harder. We'll do better. Must improve is what we want. But they, Joshua doesn't say that. 
So that's just happened. And they're camping in a place that's called, that's just over, over the river. So there's Jericho, there's a river, and then there's a big plain. And I'm only going to say this once because it's really awkward as a preacher to say it. But they're camping in a place called Shittim. That's it. I'm never going to say that in the rest of it because even though it's in the Bible, it feels wrong to say, Mom, I'm sorry. It just feels bad. All right? So... <laughs> They're camping in this place, and over the river from them, they can see Jericho, and it's intimidating intentionally. It's got large walls, which at the time was really unusual. And so it's like big and intimidating, and they can see that, and they know it's in the distance. And the place where the the family now, the family of God that's been blessed in this nation, the place where they're camping has got a lot of history for them as well. It's where um, this king tried to curse them but couldn't and ended up blessing them in this place. But it's also where they went off the rails, the old, the old crew that had to die, that they ended up doing some worship to demon gods. They end up doing awful, unspeakable things um, with some women from some neighboring um, tribes that God specifically said don't have anything to do with these people. And because of that and their unfaithfulness in that place, 24,000 people died. So the chances are everybody that's camping in this story knows somebody who died in the place where they're camping. So I want that to settle for a minute. This is a really significant place for them. It's also where Moses' leaving speech was done. Not quite a leaving party, but his leaving speech where he recapped everything was and did say, guys, please do better than you did before. And it's also where Joshua's just been appointed leader. So this place where they're camping is really rich in history. It's, it's like quite a, a significant place for them. And they're there. And so we're going to read from Joshua 2. It says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent secretly two men from that place as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Pause there for a minute. So for anybody who's listening to this through the family of faith of Israel's ears, they're immediately remembering, hang on, this has happened before. I'm, I'm remembering now, this sounds a little bit similar to something that Moses did when we were back here last time, 40 years earlier, and they would be right. But what's interesting in this moment is that Joshua picks completely different tactics than Moses did. So Moses picks 12 spies and says publicly to everybody, okay, we're sending the 12 spies in. It's a big group project. And we're going to send the 12 spies in and we want you to go spy out the whole land and then come bring back a report. And the 12 spies go in to the whole land and they come back and they say, the grapes are awesome, everything looks amazing, but 10 of them are like, we totally cannot do this. No, we are too tiny. We're like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Joshua and his friend Caleb were like, no, we we totally can do this. But because of the bad report and how it spread throughout the nation, they, they were in unbelief and doubt. And so then they couldn't enter in at that point, And they had to then wander around for 40 years. So in this moment, Joshua, uh, Moses announces to everybody, 12 spies, the whole land, they come back and they say no. Joshua's had a long time to think about this now. So he doesn't do it the same way. He sends in two spies. And he does it secretly. He doesn't announce it to anybody. He sends in two spies, sends them in secretly. And he says, concentrate on Jericho. 
look at the land, but we really want to know what's going on in Jericho. And they come back and spoil alert. They say yes. So there's this big difference in tactics that's happening straight along. And I, I wonder if Joshua's been like, the group project that I was a part of 40 years ago went terribly, like really bad. Imagine that you were part of that group project and you were like, we can totally do this. And all the other 10 guys were like, no, no, we can't. And because of the other 10 guys, everybody that you knew had to die. That's, that's like a, an E in your group project. That's like a total fail. Like, you did really well. Your presentation was great. You brought the textures. You did the lovely things. But as a group, you totally failed. It was like an F. F for everybody. Josh is like, no, nah, I'm going to do it differently this time. And I'm pretty sure he would have picked the two guys that were the most full of faith, that were like, you know, the glass isn't half full. If there's no glass, we're going to make a glass. We're going to find a glass. We're going to make that glass full. We'll just do whatever we can because he really wants to make this work because last time they stuffed it up. It was a 40-year mistake and everybody that they knew had to die before they could get back to here. So if that was you, would you not be picking some really confident, positive, faith-filled, yes, we can kind of people? And I see, I see the humor in this account. When I'm thinking, when I'm reading this, I see the humor. Because, you know, it said they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. I'm just imagining when the two spies came back to Joshua and were giving their account, how that conversation went. So how did it go? Good, 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 totally good. We can, we, can, we can absolutely take the land. Excellent. I knew there was a reason why I picked you guys. Good, good, good. So how did it go? It went well. It went well. We walked up there and, uh, and we went into this house, right? Good, yes, yes. Uh, and it was a house, yes. And there was a person there, yes. Her name was Rahab, yes. And she was a prostitute. Mm. Uh, let's just start that conversation again. And uh, I hope you know where this is going because I like get to the end of the story, guys, because this is not a great start on your report back to me. It's how I imagine that conversation going. Probably didn't, but that's how I imagine it in my head. So verse two, let's carry on. And it was told to the king of Jericho... Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So even though in the natural we would look at this choice and be like, this is not a great choice, guys, for you to make, it's actually a smart place for them to go because really it would be a place where there's lots of people coming and going and it would be a place where there's not a lot of questions asked. But somehow the king's found out and, that, and everybody knows what's going on because it's not just Rahab that would have told the king because we know that she doesn't but somehow this news has filtered up through a lot of people and the king knows exactly what's going on there's two spies in Rahab's house and they're here to spy out the land and I always used to think how is that possible in such a massive city how is it that two guys coming in and it gets back up to the king so quickly that he can turn around and be like I know why you guys are here but instead of picturing like a huge city like, like Melbourne or Paris or, or you know, Brisbane, something like a, a big city, I want you to think more in the thousands rather than the tens of thousands of people. I want you to think like distance-wise, 
like a few football fields. So it's big and it's a city for its time, but it's not so big that somebody coming in isn't going to be noticed and it get back up the chain of command. News travels fast in this kind of place. Let's carry on for verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, if you're listening to this, for, for the original listeners, the shades here of the midwife's story, I want you to come all the way back into Exodus and we hear this little interesting story about the midwives. And Pharaoh gives a specific instruction to the midwives because Israel's um, it's prospering and there's loads of babies being born and the king of um, Egypt at the time, the Pharaoh, was like, this is no good. And so he gives a direct instruction to the midwives, kill all the baby boys. And they're like, sure. And then they go away and they're like, no, we won't do that. And so they're given a direct instruction and then they lie to the Pharaoh. They lie to the king of Egypt and they cover it up and they say, the Israelite women are just so vigorous and they give birth and we get there and then they're there and they can't do anything about it. And there's, there's echoes of that story in this story. Because again, we've got a woman not in a position of power who is being given a direct um, instruction by a king saying, bring them out, we know you have them. And she lies in this story directly to the king. And she says, I didn't know who they were. I don't know where they went. You should go out this way and maybe you'll catch them. That is an incredible risk on Rahab's part. If that was found out that she was lying, she'd immediately be killed and probably her entire family too. She takes this incredible risk in lying to her king. And she goes even further because the custom was if you had a stranger in your home, you had to look after them. But she goes even further and she protects them at risk to her and her own family's lives. She puts her and her family's lives on the line to look after these two guys who she's never met before. She doesn't know them. They're not like good friends that have come around to stay. She's never met them before and she risks her life and her family's lives for them. Verse 6 says that she calls them to a sense. She kind of shoves them up on the roof, covers them up with the flax. And this again... For the original listeners, we don't need to make too much of this, but there's this, the shades of Moses here and Moses' birth story where he's hidden in bulrushes. There's this moment of peril where, again, there's this death sentence over all the baby boys in Israel. And so his sister hides Moses in the bulrushes. And it's interesting because the, the original writers wants us to hear this because in verse 6 where it says, she brought them up to the roof and in our English, it says, and hid them with the stalks of flax. In the original language, it specifically says, she hid him. Now, we know there's two spies. 
So why is the writer using the singular when it would make more sense and be more accurate to use a plural? Because they want us to be remembering these stories. It's this kind of echo that's happening. This is a really significant thing happened right at the start of this amazing story. And they're using that to help us see this is an incredible story. We're kind of getting to a good part of an amazing um, act of God. So kind of it's helping those bells ring in their heads. So before we carry on reading, I want us to review everybody's positions in the story. We've got the nation of Israel that camped in a place of death. 24,000 people died. They camped in a place where pretty much all of them have been disobedient. A place of transition. They're waiting in this moment, in this story. And they're looking over into Jordan, into this promised land, into this place where God said, this is where you can make your home but they have got Jericho in the distance, intentionally intimidating. We've got Joshua, a newly appointed leader, with his first act of leadership done completely in secret. Nobody knows what's happening. But Joshua, this is a really vulnerable time. Everybody must be thinking, because they've just done a big speech, and then silence for everybody else. They must be thinking, what is Joshua doing? What is he waiting for? He must be in his tent wondering, what is going on? Did I pick the right guys? Are they going to come back to me with their heads on a stick? Like, what is going to happen? This is my first big move as the leader of a nation. That's a lot of pressure. I hope I get this right. We've got Jericho and its people in a fortified city with these massive walls built to be intentionally intimidating that says, don't even bother coming in. We can keep you out. We can weigh you out. And yet they can see over the river the nation of Israel camped out. We've got two spies on the top of a roof with their faces pressed to the warm clay with scratchy flax on top of them thinking, how on earth did we get here? Probably with their hand on their sword or their spear, tense, thinking we've just put our life in the hands of this demon-worshipping prostitute woman who we've never met before. They may be thinking perhaps this wasn't the wisest strategic move that we've made today, but hey, we've got to go with it now because this is what it is. I'm thinking they were probably a wee bit stressed. Their cortisol levels were pretty high, tense, worried, ready for action, thinking this was not how I thought the day was going to go. I've got Rahab, Canaanite woman, prostitute who worships and sacrifices to a demon god that God has specifically said these people cannot be part of the family of God who's just lied to her king for two men she's never met before and she's just about to go up the stairs for a conversation that nobody in this story is expecting let's listen to what she says Before the men lay down, that's before the men went to go to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That's probably where the spies' jaws began to drop. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That's 40 years earlier. 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me, my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my, and she goes a big list here, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell of this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Just an incredible piece of, uh, just to, to, to hear this for the first time, nobody's expecting this. We've maybe heard this loads of times, and so we know where the story's going, but for people listening to the first time, they would have been like, what just happened? How is this woman saying this incredible prophetic statement? She's prophesying in this moment, saying, I know God's going to give you the land, the statement of faith that comes out of her mouth. And we see that Israel are looking up at Jericho going, oh my goodness, it's Jericho. We have to sort out Jericho as our first thing. We have to tackle that before we can do anything else. And it turns out that Jericho's looking at Israel going, oh no, Israel's over there. They're coming. What on earth do we do? Our hearts are melting away in us. These two foes are looking at each other going, oh no. And each is thinking about the other going, they're going to be so intimidated. Oh my goodness. The city have heard the stories of what God has done. In the natural, they absolutely have the upper hand. They've got a defensive system. They could wait them out. They could close up the walls, which they do later in the story, and they could totally wait them out for a long time. They were in the upper hand. But yet actually, we find out they're all in a massive position of fear. They're totally afraid of the Israelites. We could say this, that they were actually grasshoppers in their own eyes, even though they had the upper hand. The change of position from the two spies shifted the perspective of the story entirely. They, the two spies, did not know that that was what was going on in this city until they moved their position. And moving the position shifted the perspective. When they were walking up, there was no way that they would anticipate that Rahab was going to have this come out of her mouth. But they've just heard that for 40 years, Jericho's been afraid of Israel. Not just recently, but for 40 years. Because it says, we heard the stories of how the Lord opened up the sea. That happened 40 years ago. They've had 40 years of cooking on this idea of, oh my goodness, the Israelites are wandering around and their God is incredible. And we can't defeat them. There's no way we can do that. For 40 years, all this time, they've been fearing Israel. And with good reason. Because Israel's protected by the God of heaven and earth, as Rahab says. And I just wonder, I can't prove this from the text, but I just wonder that as the Israelites are wandering around in the desert, and every now and again, they would have come close to Jericho. Not so close, but close enough that they would have seen them in the distance and heard about them. I just wonder if Jericho saw the cloud by day and the fire by night. I wondered if as the city was going to sleep, they looked out in the distance and saw a pillar of fire 
and was like, ah, oh, Israel's back in the area. And what kind of God is this that protects their people with a, a pillar of fire? What kind of God is this that produces cloud, that just follows them around? What kind of God is this that moves rivers and oceans? They're there and they're around. I wonder if they saw it. And Jericho on the outside looks very intimidating, but on the inside it's full of fear. And as I was preparing this, I felt that specifically, and I've said this at Redcliffe because I preached it at Redcliffe last week, but it might be for somebody in this room. That there's somebody here, or maybe at Redcliffe, that in your world, there's somebody who you look at and you're like, they're so intimidating. They're so intimidating. But if we could go behind the wall of their life, you'd find out they're actually living in fear. To you, they look intimidating and powerful and established, and there's no way. But actually, if we were to go behind, you'd see that there's, they're full of fear, and they need the one who can release them from that fear. Rahab has this change of position, this soul 180 that she does, this entire death sentence that was over her and her whole family at the start of the day. She puts faith with works and courage and this posture of humility towards a God that she doesn't even know about properly. She's just seen and heard some stuff. And she throws herself on the mercy of God as represented in the two spies and says, can I be part of the family? Can my family be part of this family? And they were totally within their rights to say, thank you for that information. No, no, you may not. We will just kill you all anyway. Now, for us, that's like, well, that's not very nice, which it's not. It's not a nice thing to do, but that would have been completely um, acceptable within the rules of like war and engagement at the time. It would be totally normal for them to get that information from Rahab. Everybody's scared of us. Great. Well, we'll slaughter you now and your whole family so that you can't tell the king where we're going to go. Because why would they trust Rahab? Got no reason to trust her. And she throws herself on the mercy of God in these two spies. And it results in the salvation for her and her family. They're counted as righteous. And Rahab, it's really interesting. I'll come to that in a minute. But sleep, sleep comes to the house for both Rahab and the spies at the end of this day. And I imagine that as the spies were settling down, they were thinking and saying to each other, oh, I did not see the day going like this. Whatever I thought today was going to be, this is not this. And as Rahab and the family and the people that are in her house are going to sleep, I bet she's thinking, oh, I did not see this day working out like this. But I'm glad that it did because my entire family is now safe from destruction. And the account here concludes with instructions by Rahab. She tells the spies, this is how you go out and you don't get caught. So again, she's helping them again. And there's a further three days of waiting for Joshua before he hears the good news because they have to hide in the hill country for three days. And then Rahab gives these instructions to the spies. And we get in verse 23 when it says this, Then the two men returned to Joshua. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to him. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Now, they've not been to all the land. They've been to Jericho. And also the inhabitants of the land melt away because 
of us. The words that came out of their mouth, Joshua was not expecting that report. I can guarantee. I'm, he was probably hoping that it, was, it went well, but I'm not sure that he would be thinking it was going to go as well as it did. This four-day reconnaissance mission doesn't actually change the strategy that happens next because the angel of the armies of the Lord comes and gives a strategy for Joshua. And it's no different whether they talk to Rahab or not. The only thing that is different is the confidence with which Israel walks up to the walls. Because I'm fairly sure the report from the two spies everybody is afraid of us, that would have gone through the nation of Israel pretty quickly. We're, we think they're, you know, we're afraid of them. No, everybody in the town, everybody in the city, they are afraid of us. Their hearts are melting away because of us. They've been afraid of us for 40 years, guys. And so I'm fairly sure that as the people of Israel walked up to the walls and have to march around it, they would have walked it with a confidence that they never would have had had the two spies not been in Rahab's house and heard the report, that position changed their perspective. They came up to the walls with a confidence that they never would have had, had this account not happened. The new perspective now shifts their position. They walk tall to go to an enemy that's already defeated in their own mind. And there's a new perspective for Rahab and her family, because there's a bit of time that elapses between this And then when Jericho is actually taken and her whole family is saved and God welcomes her in and saves them from destruction. And it's really interesting when we get into the New Testament, Rahab is counted in the hall of faith. She's listed. She's also listed in James 2. And this is where she's in rare company here. She's actually listed right after Abraham, where the writer says, if we want an example of somebody who has faith and works, we look to Abraham, we look to Rahab. How amazing is that? That this Canaanite woman, this pagan woman who worshipped demon gods, and she comes and says to the God of all earth and heaven, can I be part of the family? Can I change my position? Can I come and throw myself on the mercy of God? And can I bring my family with me? Can everybody come, please? And God says, yes, yes, you can. And the New Testament writers recognize faith and works together. This is what she's doing in this moment. So that's all lovely. But I'm guessing you don't have a Jericho wall in your back garden. And hopefully... We're not visiting prostitutes' houses this week in our life, or we're not sending out spies secretly. So you might be thinking, well, Jules, how on earth is this applicable to my life today in Brisbane, in Warner? How does this help me this week? Here's some questions that I want us to reflect on as we enter our new week together. First is this, are you in a place of intimidation today? Israel and Jericho looked at each other and saw an insurmountable foe. They both looked at each other and was like, there's no way we can take them on. And I wonder, in that place of intimidation, the the person or the people that had the responsibility to not think like that were the people of Israel, because they had the God of heaven and earth with them. They had the God that brings water out of rocks. They had the God that makes a way through seas. They had the God that does 
pillar of clouds by day, pillars of fire by night. That God was their God and had just said that he was going to be faithful to them. And so I wonder if you're in a place of intimidation today, could you shift your perspective and see the position that you're actually in, that you're truly in? If you're intimidated in your work, in your business, in your family, in a health thing, in a money situation, in a problem that you're just like, I've got no idea how to sort this. If it seems big and intimidating, today, could you shift your perspective and see that you are actually the head and not the tail, that you are above and you're not beneath, that the God of angel armies is on your side? Joshua has a chat with the commander of the armies of the Lord, and he's like, there's a whole gang that's with you and for you. And Joshua's like, it's good to know everybody. Good to know. Could you see that the God of angel armies is on your side, that he goes with you, that you've been equipped to do good works, that everything that you need for life and righteousness has already been given and placed into your life the minute that you said yes to Jesus? Could you see this morning that, yes, you're sat in a church in Warner, but you're also seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians tells us. That we're not just sat here, but we're sat with Christ in heavenly places right now. That's the spiritual reality of what is going on in your life. Could you see that perhaps it's just a mustard seed sized faith, tiny, minuscule, insignificant, overlooked, but yet because of God, that can move mountains in your life. It can move mountains inside of you and the presence of God goes with you. If we could look in the spiritual, could we see that we have a pillar of cloud by day that goes with us every moment, that there's a pillar of a fire by night that rests with you and over your house and your neighborhood simply because you're there. Could you shift your perspective and see the position you're truly in today? I wonder, today, are you in a place of waiting? Joshua, I feel for Joshua in this story, right? Because he sends his spies out. He makes a massive leadership gamble really, really big. He's got the weight of a nation on his, like, on his shoulders. He, it's him. It's him and God that has to look after this nation. And he makes a call, sends out two guys, does an entirely different strategy to Moses, his mentor, and the one who, you know, talks with God face to face, comes back with glory on his face, and has to wear veils and all sorts of things. And Joshua's like, well, it was nice how Moses did it, but I'm going to try something different. Like, that's incredible courage to, to be like, well, this is how the person who got us out of captivity and slavery did it. But I think I might try a better way. I think I might try something different. And then he has to wait all of this time wondering what on earth is going on? How is it going? Are they just going to come back to me dead? Are they going to come back and say, absolutely not. It's a hopeless cause. Let's go the other way. What, what is going to happen? And then the spies come back and are like, it went well. We met this girl called Rahab. And she was a prostitute. And he's got to be thinking, what? How? This is not how I thought this was going to go. Are you in a place of waiting today? And if you are, could you choose a position of humility and trust while you wait? If you're waiting on a doctor's report, if you're waiting on a leadership decision that was risky but, and you don't know how it's going to play out, 
If you're waiting for a business plan to unfold, if you're waiting for a child to come back to the Lord, if you're waiting for whatever it is, that we're all waiting for something, for Jesus to come through somehow in our life. Can you wait on your knees? Could you wait prayerfully, in humility, not fretting and worrying, but could you trust in the, the time in God's presence would be the best place to spend that waiting season? Could you shift your position and change your perspective by choosing humility and trust in a God that is for you and with you and wants to work it all together for your good and wants to fill your mind with peace instead of what if, what if, and if then this, that, what will it work out? How will it happen? Could you choose position of humility and trust while you wait? Could you position yourself under God's hand, knowing that in the right season and time, he'll lift you up? Can you allow a position of humility to shift your perspective from worry to trust and say, even if this doesn't work out how I think it's going to work out, yet will I praise the name of the Lord? Yet will I trust you? Yet will I worship you? Because it's not dependent on an outcome that I want, but it's just dependent on how good God is and how glorious he is, and how faithful he is. Could we choose to wait in humility and trust? Last two questions as the band comes and joins me today. I wonder, are you scared of being sent out today? Like the two spies were. Is the thought of talking about church, you know when that question comes, what did you do on the weekend? And you might dread that, because... You've been at that workplace for years now and you've never yet said, I went to church and now it feels awkward. Is the thought of talking about your faith in God, what Jesus has done for you, how would that conversation even go? Does it fill you with fear of the unknown? Do you have questions like, well, what would I say? We've got nothing in common. They're just not going to understand it. It feels weird. Our lives are really different. They're about different things. They're just not interested in the things of God. Their life is devoted to things actually totally opposite to the things of God. When I hear about their weekend and what they're doing, there's no way they're going to be interested in church and in Jesus and in God. But I wonder, could you choose obedience today instead? Could you walk up in the analogy to the walled city of your workplace, of your colleagues, your education setting, your retirement village, in the supermarket, in those people, in your family gathering? Could you walk up to those walled places trusting that the Holy Spirit will lead you at the right place in the right time? And you might actually be surprised who is closer to God than you think, um, closer than you'd ever imagined. Perhaps that position of obedience could change your perspective and that person that you are thinking is so far away from God, is so anti the things of God, but has actually been watching your life from afar and would say, I've seen clouds by day. I've seen fires by night. I've seen how you've walked through tough times. I've seen how you've got peace in your life. I've seen how worry doesn't seem to touch you in the same way. 
I've seen how all the stuff about inflation and recession and house prices increasing and how, you know, cost of living and all of that and, and all of our workplaces like in fear and it's, but yet you, you carry in peace. How are you not touched in the same way? You might find yourself having a conversation with somebody and putting your head on the pillow at the end of the day thinking, I did not see how that conversation was going to go. Like the spies and like Rahab did, thinking, I didn't see this coming. I thought they were far from God. I thought they worshipped demons. I thought they were so anti the things of God. And yet, actually, I find out their heart's towards God. They can't articulate it properly yet. But actually, they're looking and they're seeking. Could you choose obedience instead? And with every eye closed in the building today, our last question is this. Are you in a place of wanting salvation today? You might have seen and heard about God from afar. You might have heard the stories of what He's done for other people. You might have seen the difference that Jesus has made in other people's life. And your life right now from the outside might look like it is in total opposition to God. But I wonder this morning, could you change your position and choose to say yes to Jesus? Could you say yes to the one who can save your soul? Yes to the one who has loved you every day of your life. Yes to the God who knew you even before you were born, who's got good plans for you and today wants to give you an eternal hope and a future. Could you humble your heart today before Him and say, Jesus, I don't have it all worked out, but I need you. And begin that journey of faith. If that's you this morning and you want to shift your position and say yes to Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. Would you be really brave and just raise your hand as I'm looking across the room today and every eye is closed and head is bowed so no one else is going to see but me. As I'm looking across, we always want to give an opportunity. Amen. As we close, I want you to leave you with this thought. That Rahab, I'm going to almost guarantee, after this conversation with the spies, didn't go down and immediately throw out all of her idols and change her life entirely. But as she was brought close to the family of God, as she was then around the things of God, as she learned a different way, that she walked out her salvation in a safe place where people modelled and showed to her, this is how... We live a life devoted to a God who loves us and has given the ultimate sacrifice for us. And that's what we're doing in church. I encourage you, be in community as much as you can be. Maybe that's just the position change that you need to make that's going to shift your perspective. That as you lean into community, as you lean into being vulnerable with somebody, as you lean into life groups, as you lean into being known and seen and loved for who you truly are, that perhaps that's going to shift the perspective in your life. Let me pray for you as we close. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. God, we thank you that when we were far off, that you came and you found us. God, we thank you that you're all powerful and that we're serving a God who is able to move mountains and part seas and you're still the same God. You're no different than what you were back then and you're with us and you care for us. 
and you're looking after us and our families. And so, Father, I pray that as we go into this new week, that Jesus will go in with a boldness and a confidence that says, our God is with us. May that position be the thing that changes our perspective this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.